I don't know about you, but I've actually seen our homeless friends be giving people, giving of protection to one another or the food they've received to one another. I've seen people with nothing give up their time, give up their friendship, give their listening ears to someone, which, by the way, is sometimes a greater sacrifice than money. For Christians, many times, many times, the point is not what we give. And sometimes the point is not even where we give, though the Bible does talk about giving to specific needs. For us believers, we're following Jesus, it's more important about how we give. And we are unique in how we give, in that we give in faith. Or another way to say it, how we're saying it for the purposes of this sermon this morning, we give it away. That makes no sense. Right? To the flesh, to logic, to the eye, to the numbers, our giving should make very little sense. The giving we do should only make sense if there is something going on that doesn't meet the eye. That there is something going on in another kingdom than the kingdom we see. That, that, that there is not just things going on in the natural, but our giving should, should only make sense if something's going on in the supernatural. Now, I know that sounds kind of cryptic, so we will walk through this text and we will see what it means to give in a way that makes no sense with some tangibles. Here's a tangible for you. Starting in verse 14, we see that they give from the heart. They give from the heart. Giving in a way that makes no sense, you start with the heart. Verse 14, Paul says, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. You shared in my trouble. Paul says he can tell that the burdens that he has has become the Philippians' burdens. That his heavy heart has become their heavy heart. His trouble has become their trouble. His pain has become their pain. The first idea in giving in a way that makes no sense is to give from the heart. We give with our hearts first. We give our hearts first. We share in distress, not just dollars. Now, giving dollars can be good, but giving away room in our hearts for someone else's distress is Christian. Because this is how Christ gave. Is this not how Christ gave to us when he bled and died on an old rugged Roman cross on the hill that looked like a skull 2,000 years ago? This is the giving of Jesus. He always gave heart first. He always gave from the heart. This is even how he gave away his ministry and his disciples. It started with sharing room in his heart for the distress of others. Matthew 9, 35, Jesus went about to all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. Are you this morning filled with compassion for something, for somebody? For some group. He was filled with compassion because they were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then he said, the harvest is plenteous. Pray therefore that the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers, will give away laborers to that harvest. Jesus felt the distress of the people he came to save. He shared their distress. He gave room in his heart to carry their distress. This is the Christian way to give because this is Christ's way 
of giving. And this is what the Philippians are doing for Paul that warranted such a thank you note. They are not just giving him stuff. They're giving him sympathy. And here's why this makes no sense. The Philippian church had plenty of distress of their own. Philippi was in a place called Macedonia. Paul actually talks about Philippi in another place in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 8, where he thanks them there as well for their giving. And when he writes in uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2, he said, he's talking to the Corinthian church, but he says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, like the Philippian church, that in great trial of affliction and in their deep poverty, they abounded in riches of generosity. Right, So they had poverty and persecution of their own. So for them to make room in their hearts for the poverty and persecution of Paul makes no sense. Say, how could they even give like that? How can they give in such a way? It is a giving that only comes through following Jesus. You see, what makes sense is distress making us selfish. That makes sense. I'm in distress, so I better focus on me. That makes sense. But Jesus showed us a new way and a different way of dealing with distress. And it's this idea that, that since I know distress, I should focus on others. Since I know what it's like to be poor and persecuted, I can sympathize with Paul because he's poor and persecuted. This is giving from the heart. Are you giving from the heart. I know that you are burdened because of your sin, right? Your sin is causing wounds in your heart. So you feel compassion for yourself. You want forgiveness. You want to feel a sense of being right with God, which, by the way, only comes as we focus on the cross, not our works, right? But, but you want compassion and you have some level of self compassion. And the question is, are you giving that away to someone else? Or in their sin, should they just be told to stop it, to you know, knock it off, or to leave, or etc.? Or are you giving them from the heart, you sharing with them the distress of sin, bearing their burden, restoring such a one, as Galatians 6 tells us to do? I know that your problems have caused great distress in your life. And rightfully so. We have people with very difficult, very real problems in our church. But when it comes to the problems of others, is your attitude to spend some of your precious prayer time on them? Or do you have an attitude like, hey, you know what? Suck it up. Life is hard when it comes to the problem of others. You see, we give in a way that makes no sense, like Christ gave in a way that makes no sense, and that first and foremost, we give room in the heart for the distress of others. We give from the heart, even when ours is burdened. It's giving it away. That makes no sense. Not only do we give from the heart, we give for heaven. Look at verse 18, I'm sorry, 15 and 16. We give for heaven. It says this, Now you, Philippians, know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my 
necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Very interesting. Paul here is not only thanking them for their current gift, he's thanking them for their early gifts. Paul started the church at Philippi in Acts chapter 16, and they supported him uh, as their minister, as their church planter, and as their preacher. It was started in the home of a wealthy woman named Lydia. Uh, she opened her home for the church, and likely Paul got to stay there as long as he needed and wanted, and he probably got all the snacks he could handle, which is plenty of payment for a preacher, typically. And so, especially as Baptist guys, we're like, money's great, fried chicken's better. Anyway, so, yeah, he got all he needed. They fulfilled what he needed. They, 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 they supplied him early on when he started the church. Well, after, if you read Acts 17, after he starts the church in Acts 16, he goes to a place called Thessalonica, and this is where, you know, this is where he faces some of the most severe persecution up to that point that he had faced, right? Very few people wanted to believe. Everybody wanted to overthrow the church that he had started there in a house uh, that was owned by a guy named Jason. In fact, they thought Paul was ruining the world, not saving the world. They thought Jesus was ruining the world, not saving the world. They even said when they came with the soldiers to Jason's house, they said, those guys have turned the world upside down. And they, they persecuted them physically, but one of the things they did was they also charged them a fine for practicing their Christianity. And the Bible tells us that there were brothers that came down, came over, whatever, from Philippi to Paul in Thessalonica to meet his needs for things and for safety. And so he's recalling these early gifts that they gave him in Thessalonica. And it appears, okay, that Paul's doing that, he's, he, he's, he's reminding them of their past gifts and their current gifts as a way to say, I've always been excited about what you guys are doing, what you guys have been able to do in your giving. Paul's excited about their gifts. But verse 17 says he is not excited because he seeks the gift, right? It, it's because these gifts are bearing fruit to their account. See, Paul is not a guy who loves money. He's not a guy with expensive taste. In fact, the Bible tells us that Paul, whenever, many times rather, when he would go to start a new church in a new city and, and, and be preaching in the synagogues, many times as believers came to Christ and even though he could draw some support from them, he would make and fashion tents for a living. And live off of that so he didn't have to burden the new believers with anything financial and just could teach and preach the gospel. So this is not a guy who needs a Rolex and a Bentley to be happy. In fact, this is the guy who wrote to us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But what he is excited about is that as they give to him, all the fruit he's bearing, is not just being accredited to him, it's also being accredited to them. That's what he's excited about. He's excited about uh, that, that because they're giving to him, they, though they're not there with him, they are simultaneously doing all the ministry he is doing and bearing the fruit that comes with it. We know he did a lot of ministry and bore a lot of fruit. Right, so he's in Roman jail cell. He's writing multiple letters that end up in the New Testament. The Philippian church 
is to be credited with some of the fruit that comes from the writing of the New Testament because they supplied to Paul during that prison stint where he wrote these letters. That's what he's excited about. And to be honest, I totally understand this as a pastor. Um, I actually, like a missionary, have supporters that keep me full time. And I, and I mean this when I tell them this, and I have told them this, that whenever I get to baptize somebody, my supporters who don't go to our church, they're all over the country, people I've known in the past, some family, stuff like that. But I say, look, whenever I baptize somebody and they go down and they come up a new life in Christ, they've been saved and born again. Whenever I baptize somebody, your hands are on top of my hands as they come in and out of the water through your support. It's not me doing that. We're doing that. And I love telling that to the supporters. And I really mean it. And I truly am excited for them that that's part of the fruit they're Barren. They're getting credit for a ministry they're not physically here to see or to do. You see, now that sort of makes no sense. You see, giving that makes sense is giving for whatever you can see right now. And sometimes that's very, very good. I want to be clear on that. Sometimes we give, we see a result, that's great. In fact, uh, perhaps you know this, perhaps you don't. The number one place that Christians give is actually not the church. The number one place that Christians give are nonprofits that serve children and youth, particularly nonprofits that feed children. That's the number one place Christians give. Church is actually second. Now, giving to a nonprofit that feeds kids is only good. Keep giving to nonprofits that feed kids. We actually, by God's grace, at times have been able to give to nonprofits that feed kids. We, in no way, stop giving to nonprofits that feed kids. But it is interesting to note, as some have speculated, why more money goes to nonprofits that feed kids than goes to the church. And as different seminary professors and people try to figure out these statistics and put together an answer, what really came back through surveys and research was that people were giving to these nonprofits and arguing to these nonprofits, which is good, because they can see many times the result, right? Kid doesn't have food. I give, the kid has food, and that is definitely to be celebrated. I don't want to damper that at all. In fact, I encourage that. But I do want to say something that's just notable. As we grow in Christ and mature in Christ, something you're going to notice in the New Testament is that sometimes we are called to give and we will not see the result of what happens until heaven. It makes much less sense, doesn't it? But this is what Jesus called us to do. Sometimes we're called to give and the treasure is laid up in heaven. Matthew 6, 19, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth, rust, doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where none of that can happen. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You say, what is the treasure we're laying up in heaven? Well, part of it, part of it is people. People are the treasure. In fact, I can prove this from this very chapter. If you're in Philippians 4, just look at the top of the chapter. Look at verse number 1. Philippians 4.1, Paul calls the Philippian church his joy and his crown. Referring to, typically, Paul, when he mentions the crowns, typically referring to treasures in heaven. They're his treasure. He may not see all the Philippians. He may not know all the Philippians. 
You may never be back in Lydia's house again, but there's going to be a lot of people in heaven because of the ministry done there. And they will be a crown, if you will, for Paul, for he's the one who started their church and gave to them. You see, when we as a church, as a church, when we give to missionaries like the Philippians did, we give to heaven. There will be people in heaven that we've never met, that we'll never meet here on earth because we gave. That's giving for heaven. Giving and trusting a result will come in the world to come. In fact, I want to do this right now during the sermon. It's kind of an unusual uh, thing. We don't always do this, but it just fit in so perfectly that I thought, why not give it a try? I think we got a picture. I think we got a slide. But I want us to support a new missionary family for us, the Ball family. Let's give it up for the Ball family, first of all. And yes, we have a couple of them here. Abby's leading worship today, um, in case you did, so she's connected to that family. The Ball family, many of them have been in our church, and their family, extended families in our church. And um, they were directly in our church for about a year due to COVID. And they served here the whole year, and they served well. And uh, they're missionaries to Fiji, and uh, they have been pastors there and doing ministry, giving the gospel there for a long time. And our deacons thought this would be a really good fit for our next missionary to support. So we want to vote them in to support them for 50 bucks a month so that we can be a part of what they're doing in Fiji. Okay, so we're going to do this right here during the sermon. I just, one of my members, I just need a motion to set us into business. I got Sergeant Kate. I want a motion to, to vote in supporting the Ball family for $50 a month. I just need one member to motion us in. Justin and Kate, we'll go for two, double dip, no big deal. Right? If you're a member here and you're in favor of supporting the Ball family, ministering, preaching the gospel in Fiji, please raise your hand. All right, any opposed? Ladies and gentlemen, our new missionaries to Fiji. Let's give it up for them. Now, I want to do that during the message because I wanted to connect that with this point. Okay, You're not going to go to Fiji, except for maybe Abby, but that's it. But few of you are going to go to Fiji, right? You're not going to see all the people that get saved because of this church. You're not going to see, right? We're going to give to them $50 a month, and it is likely... Besides, when they come back to see family and they're here with us, which they will be at some point, right? It is likely there's going to be very little that you see that we see as a church body in result. Now, but giving for heaven and the type of giving the Philippians are doing and the type of giving Paul's talking about, excited about, is this idea that because we give, all the fruit they bear in Fiji is to some degree credited also to our accounts that as Mike baptizes people in Fiji, our hands are on his hands, baptizing them as well. And there will literally be people we meet in the new heavens, in the new earth, with King Jesus on the throne that lived in a totally different part of the world that the Lord has used us to bring there so that we get to know each other forever, our joy, our crown. This is the type of giving that Christians are called to. It's a giving that really doesn't make sense because we're giving and we're going to be giving monthly, but in a way that 
Well, it makes no sense because we're not going to see the results, some of the results at least, until we get to heaven. So we give from the heart. We give for heaven. We give for him. Verse 18. Now we're in verse 18. Let's check this out. Verse 18. Paul says, Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus, that's the guy who brought the gift, the things sent from you. That's the gift. A sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, or a sweet-smelling savor. So they gave to Paul, but they pleased more than just Paul. Paul is thankful, right? He had no clothes, now he's got clothes. He's pleased. He had no food, now he's got some food. He's pleased. But more than just Paul is pleased, God is pleased. The Bible here talks about this sweet-smelling savor, the sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And this language actually goes back to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, third and fourth book of the Old Testament of the Bible. The people of Israel were to offer up sacrifices to God. And those sacrifices could be smelled, and from what I understand, they smelled good. They would burn them early in the morning and at night, and so the smell was good and continual. It's interesting that God wants all good things to bring us back to worship Him. He even wants a good smell to remind us of the worship of a good God. So when you wake up and you smell that, that first cup of coffee, isn't that just a great smell? It, should, it really should make you worship God. When your wife goes to TJ Maxx and she buys 42 pumpkin candles because it's September 1st and your living room smells like pumpkin, you shouldn't complain about the bill that's forthcoming. You should praise and worship God. It's true. These smells were actually, it's part of the five senses. We're made in the image of God. He cares about all of us entirely. And these smells were actually part of remembering the goodness of God. Apparently, from what I understand, that as you would walk towards the temple, the smell would get stronger. And because of the meat that was burning and because of the incense that was burning, it was this pleasant smell. And it was uh, marked that God himself was pleased by the sacrifice that was given for the sins of his people and the worship of him. Now these sacrifices, as pleasing as they were, really only served, long term at least, to point us to a better sacrifice, an ultimate sacrifice. In fact, Paul, the same guy who writes Philippians, writes Ephesians, and in Ephesians 5.2, Paul calls Jesus' sacrifice a sweet-smelling savor or a sweet-smelling aroma. Jesus, I want you to hear this, okay? This is true. Jesus was the sacrifice for your sin. Jesus paid it all. Jesus gave it all. That you might be forgiven. He took the wrath of God in your place on the cross. You're forgiven. You're under grace. You're under mercy. There's no wrath left for you. He punishes those whom he loves like a father and a little child. But he does not punish us like a judge. And never will because of Jesus. That's true. But did you know that is the secondary reason Jesus died on the cross? Jesus died for your sins. But the primary reason Jesus died was to glorify the Father. Was to, he said this himself in John, different places. John 17 is, probably, is one of them, if I remember correctly. But he was dying for the glory of God. He was dying in obedience to God the Father. He was dying for the worship and the exaltation of God the Father. In other words, 
like Hebrews says, all those bulls and all those lambs offered up on those Old Testament altars were pleasing to God, but for a moment, they momentarily pointed to a greater sacrifice, a greater lamb that was to come, Jesus, as he was offered up, not on an Old Testament altar, but on a New Testament cross, Jesus, as he died in our place for our sins, was pleasing God. It was all like a sweet-smelling savor for God the Father. It was for the glory of God to die and forgive and rise and bless his people through Jesus' ultimate sacrifice. So here, Paul calls the Philippian offering something like that. No, it's not perfect the way Jesus gave. It's not, it's not the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus gave. But their giving is like Jesus giving. It's sacrificial. And when we give sacrificially, it's like this sweet-smelling savor, this pleasant aroma. It pleases God. This is something that makes no sense to the world. Here's what I'm getting at, right? Rubber meets the road. We are not given to get something out of it. We all know preachers that overpromise on this, right? There are times when we get something out of it. Whatever, that's up to God. It's his business. If he wants to, he bless us any way he wants. He's blessed us ultimately through the cross. It's already been, we've been blessed. But they overpromise. And what they do is they make giving make sense. Because it makes sense to give if you're going to get something better back. That makes tons of sense. But the kind of Jesus, I'm sorry, the kind of giving Jesus did was a giving primarily for pleasing God the Father. We give in a way that makes no sense because we give simply to please God. Not to get something out of Him. He's already given it all. Not to earn favor from Him. He loves us perfectly. And we're saved by grace through faith. We just do it to please Him because we love Him. Let me tell you who does not understand this. Those who are going through the process typically referred to as deconstruction. I don't know if you've heard that term. It's kind of, I don't care if you've heard, I mean, I don't think we need to know the term. We don't need to know every term, but it is a process called deconstruction. It's typically someone who's been saved a long, long time or who grew up in the church in a city college in young adult life, and they begin to question their faith, which is fine. You question your faith all you want. I mean, if your faith can't be questioned, I'm not super pumped about it. Right? Like God can handle our questions. But here's what happens, right? They question their faith, and when they get the real answer from God, it doesn't please them. Which is normal. God commands us to some things that don't please us. What do you want? A t-shirt? Welcome to the club. Like this is Yeah, like three or four of the things I live my life by. I get that they would destroy me, but I don't feel like they destroy me. I'd rather do them. I don't want to give. I'd love to hoard all my stuff, right? That sounds like a hoot, right? Yeah, God's going to command some things that don't please us. That's normal because we're fallen. He's not. We're unholy. He's holy. And so when he's like, love your neighbor as yourself, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, forgive those who despitefully use you, you're like, I don't know. I don't know if I like that. 
You're telling me I don't get to get revenge? I have to forgive people? I don't like that. You know what? God's judgment doesn't typically please us. I believe what the scripture says about judgment. It just, I just believe. I believe that that is true. I believe that's why Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sins, rose again from death, that we might rise again from death. But he does tell us whoever's name was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. I don't, like, love it. Like, I don't have that on my coffee cup every morning. Like, yeah. Now, I love God, and I believe him, and I trust him, and I, and I can see it. Like, why he would have judgment. I mean, I, there's sometimes I do things, or sometimes I meet people who do things, I'm like, oh, I see, I remember, yeah, judgment, that does make sense, you're right. <laughs> but it's not, yeah. But here's the thing, they get in, deconstruction is when you question your faith, which is fine, you find out that God doesn't always please you, which is fine, but when you get into that, that situation, you have about three options, two of them make sense, one of them makes no sense. One option that makes total sense and that many are doing is to abandon their faith, to have no faith, which makes sense. In your logic and in your emotions and your mind, it's like, well, this makes me feel bad, so no more of this. Or you can recreate your faith. So this is exactly, I mean, I have friend of a friend. If you're a millennial, you have friend of a friend doing this right now, where instead of being conformed to the image of Jesus, you take the Bible and you conform it to your image. And you pick and choose. You literally customize your faith like you would, like, it's like Subway, where you go to Subway and they lay out the bread. They're like, what do you want on it? And they're a sandwich artist. I, too, am a sandwich artist. More freelance, but still. Right? They, they get out there like, what you want on it? And literally, this is deconstruction. It's like, here's the Bible. What do you want? Which parts? Which is no parts. But it makes sense. Why wouldn't I want to pick and choose what I want? That makes sense. Here's what doesn't make sense. This is your third option in deconstruction, and literally it makes no sense. It is to accept the fact that God doesn't always please you, and then repent and strive to please God. It doesn't make sense. But it's what the Bible says is called the just living by faith. The Bible tells us that those who will believe, who will come after him, who will follow him, they will live by faith, not by sight. It makes no sense that God would become a man born in essentially a dog dish with us on his mind, grow up swinging a hammer, and then finally let his enemies overtake him under a Babylonian governmental system so that the wrath of God can be placed on him, I mean, the grace of God could be placed on us so that he would drink the cup of wrath and we would drink a cup of mercy. That makes no sense. So it is perfectly, totally, completely acceptable for you to start living in a way that makes no sense and to please the one you don't fully understand, that you can't fully see, yet that's just called faith. That's what saves us, and that's what sanctifies us. And here's the idea, is that we as Christians, there are some things we do solely because it pleases God. Not because we understand it. Not because we feel it. Not because we like it. It just pleases Him. What are you doing 
for God solely because it pleases God? Do you sing even when you don't like the song because singing pleases God? Do you pray even when you don't really need something right now solely because it pleases God? You share your faith. Not because the other person is going to have an epiphany and repent and come to Christ right there, but because sharing your faith pleases God. Do you give? Time, talent, treasure, whatever. Do you give something solely because it pleases God? It's a type of giving that makes no sense. It's the type of giving the Philippians did. It's the type of giving we're called to. We give for him. And that's it. But oddly, my fourth and last point, this type of giving is a giving that makes us happy. It's a giving. It makes no sense because we're giving things away and yet happiness is storing up. It's a giving that makes us happy. This is the end of the text. The last uh, the last little bit here of the book of Philippians, the famous thank you note from Paul, verse 19. This will make you happy. It says, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So here's reason number one we're happy about being able to give. It's because God continues to give to us. So it's not the prosperity gospel to believe that God supplies our needs and that all good gifts come down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variableness or a shadow of turning. Right? We also gotta be careful not to get into the poverty gospel that if we're really following Jesus right, we will be you know, miserable. Right? That's not necessarily holy either. It can be, but it's not necessarily holy, right? Like, we don't go to the kids downstairs in kids' ministry and we're like, oh, you want some more Cheez-Its? No. Look at you worshiping. Right? Like, we don't, we don't, there's not really a value to that either. He supplies our needs. There are good things coming down from the Father of lights. And here's what Paul's saying. Philippian church, you were poor. And yet, God was supplying all your needs. Then, you gave some away. You're now poorer, and yet God will still meet all your needs. You see, many times we're too skeptical to be sacrificial. Now, this doesn't apply to some. Okay, like if you're an orphan or a widow, we're not talking to you about giving. We're giving to you. We don't want you to feel stressed on how you're going to help. We want to help you. There are people in the Bible who are not the givers, but the receivers. And that's cool. If that's, if that's the st stage of life you're in, when that plate passes, don't worry about it. We're giving to you. But you can if you want to give. But you don't have to. The orphan, the widow, you're on your deathbed. Right? Those uh, in some sort of dire straits, house just burnt down. Hey, you're the person we give to. So this doesn't go to every single person, every single situation. But let me tell you in general. In general, for most of us, we feel like we don't have much. And yet God supplies all our needs. We feel like if we give and have less, we get skeptical that will he still be able to do it? Will he still supply all of our needs? If I give out of my, my essentially my poverty, not all kinds of poverty we're talking about because the Bible is clear there are some poor we're giving to. Right? But sometimes even in what we feel is our poverty, we have to give that widow's might and trust at the end of the story is not only did she give all she had, but that God gave her all he had in the sense that he still could take care of her without the might. 
He'll supply all you need. There's no need to be skeptical. As you don't have much, you give something away. He can still supply what you really, truly need. And he does so according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And you will be so, so happy when you see that. And you note that. And you wonder at how he is taking care of the needs you face. See, being skeptical can lead you to being stingy. And who's ever met a stingy person with something to be happy about? But yet, being sacrificial can lead you to notice how God's always taking care of you. So you become generous and you become thankful and you've got everything to be happy about. I mean, I'll give you an example from our church life, okay? Our church's life. Across the street is the Way Outreach Center. The Way Outreach Center, and uh, we're a big part of that ministry. It's a homeless daycare, a homeless daytime facility. They take in homeless people all day. They can take a nap, they get fed, they get clothed. There uh, is medical care, there are haircuts, there are washers and dryers, there are showers right across the street. And they need a van to get homeless people to and from appointments. So next week, everything we give in the offering is going to go to the Way Outreach Center to try to help them get a van. That's our offering next week. Whatever's given is going straight to the Way Outreach Center. Now, our church general fund, in one sense, okay, not necessarily heaven's sense, but our human sense, isn't necessarily taking in some overabundance of money. Yet... God supplies all our needs at this church. So this month, our church general fund will take in even less money, and yet God will supply all our needs. We will lose nothing by giving one of four Sunday offerings away. In fact, what we will gain is joy when our homeless friends are able to go to the doctor. He's going to meet our, we'll be so happy to give. We're happy he takes care of us. And he's done so in a way that it's just miraculous over and over again. It just makes us happy. It makes me happy. Earlier this year, January, we were able to raise somehow. I mean, I don't know how, so I don't know. But we did. We raised $45,000 to work on the house here. And it got done by Easter. And that house is now a kids ministry space for Carter and Julia to do ministry to people who need the gospel, to kids who knew, who need the gospel. This summer, we were able to raise like $20,000 for an air conditioner, for working on the air conditioner. In like two weeks, God provided it. Now, none of this is luxury stuff, right? This doesn't apply when it's like, well, Mitch just wants another pair of Yeezys or whatever. Like, <laughs> I don't even have one pair, but hey, Christmas is coming. Y'all better live. That's a joke, by the way. That's going to get taken out of context on YouTube or something. Anyway, um, point being is like it's not luxury stuff. This isn't like you know what we could really use around here a water slide, like for the kid, you know. But these are real ministry needs. These are needs to do ministry. And yet, here's the thing: we don't have what we need, and then God supplies what we need. And then we do have what we need to such a degree. It's like we're happy, and we're happy to give it away. Because there's only more coming. 
He will supply all your needs. Here's the second reason we're happy to give. Not just because he continues to give to us, but he continues to give to others. These are the final verses. His goodbye to the Philippians. This is where he's signing the letter, sticking it in the envelope, putting it in the mail. And there's a surprise for the Philippians, even in his postscript. Look at verse 21 through 23, and then we'll finish this up. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. What a goodbye. Paul says goodbye. All the saints with me say goodbye. Some of those are his ministry team that have also been imprisoned. But then he says, all the saints say goodbye. Oh, especially the saints of Caesar's household. Say, who is that? Who are those saints? Well, Caesar is the one imprisoning Paul. He's the one that, he, Paul has to stand trial before Caesar. That's, he's in jail until that trial. The Roman government was incredibly offended by Christianity because the, 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 the mantra of the Roman Empire was Caesar is Lord. The mantra of Christianity is Jesus is Lord. And those two conflicted for Caesar. And yet, here's what's so fascinating. Some of Caesar's household, since Paul has been imprisoned, have actually gone to see him, visit him, and figure this new movement out. And they actually have repented and believed that Jesus is Lord. This could be the Roman guards who were chained to Paul. Which, could you imagine that? Being chained to Paul. Being like sitting in the middle of three seats on an airplane, and you got the Amway people on both sides. And you want to start your own business but never have to work or whatever they do. I don't know. Whatever it is called, you know, whatever that is. Anyway, I don't know if it's called that, but, you know, it's like someone's selling you something, he's giving it away, but man, that dude, he can talk. Could be that, but some actually speculate that when he says Caesar's household rather than Caesar's laborers, he's talking like some of the direct family members of Caesar have come to Christ. That's what some say. And either way, what he said in chapter 1 is true. He says, I would have you know, brethren, that the things which happened to me fallen out to the furtherance of the gospel. I mean, that's an understatement if people in Caesar's household are coming to Christ. I mean, think about this. Paul has been chained and imprisoned for preaching Jesus, and some of the people who did the chaining have now met Jesus. Doesn't that just make you happy? Do you think this, this, this made the Philippian church, this surprise twist ending, made the Philippian church a little bit happy? I mean, the most famous verse on giving in the Bible is that God loves a cheerful giver. And in the Greek, the word for cheerful is the word we use for hilarious. And the idea is that God loves to shock us and to surprise us and to give us overflowing joy that we might continually give with joy and might continually feel joy. He loves a hilarious giver, a cheerful giver. Caesar's household, they were the enemies and now they're brothers and sisters. The very folks who wanted to kill you, Philippian church, now wanna have a potluck with you after church. Right, like they went from saying, Paul, tell them we said die, to oh Paul, tell them we said hi. That's hilarious. There's something comedic about this. You see, if you will give in a way that makes no sense, sometimes God will respond by doing things that make no sense. 
Because it makes no sense that Caesar's household would be greeting the church ministering to the one they chained that has now become their pastor. But God can do anything, and God can do everything, and this is proof. So I'll close with this thought. We should give in a way that makes no sense because we are Caesar's household. I want you to know that you are Caesar's households. You are the very last person who would ever come to Christ. You say, no, not me, I've always been saved. Not really, I mean, not biblically. Someone got saved first. Like even if you grew up in a Christian home, if you search your spiritual family tree, oh, thank you, sir, appreciate it. If you search your spiritual family tree, someone got saved and, and raised you in a Christian home. And for that someone to get saved, there was a ministry somewhere who had to preach. And for that ministry to happen, someone had to give. Like if you trace it back, all of us are saved because someone somewhere gave something. It's not a product. I mean, this is something that's given away. So even if you weren't raised in a Christian home, you were saved in church or in rehab or because of a tract or a Gideon's Bible or a youth ministry, you were saved because someone gave. You were just as lost as Caesar's household. In Acts 1, when it says the gospel go to the ends of the earth, I hate to break it to you, but to an Easterner, we are the ends of the earth. We're the miracle. The Gentiles. You being saved doesn't make sense. Like we noted earlier, it doesn't make sense that the Son of God would lay down his life so that we can understand love, but here we are. And when you truly understand what had to be given for you to be given eternal life, the only thing that would not make sense is for you to refuse to give in a way that doesn't make sense. So let us give, not just money, like we said, but whatever we have, let us be a giving people, like Jesus, those who follow Jesus. Not just at church, but wherever we go. And not just in ways that make sense, but ways that make no sense at all. Giving by faith, like our Philippian friends did. I'll pray, and then Nate Foote will come up, and he will lead us in communion. We'll be reminded of the greatest gift ever given. And someone will play some music as we take that.